Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. And we will begin reading in uh, verse 1. We're going to read the, the passages that we've been studying over the last two weeks, and then we'll keep kind of flowing through uh, into our passage for this week, which is verses 9 through 13. So when you get there, say word. Word. Wow, you guys are quick. Quick. It kind of cheats when you just turn it on and choose Mark. Anyone do Bible drill when they were a kid? We're like, you had to like flip really fast. One person. Okay. Mark 1. Verse 1 is where we'll begin, and then we'll pray for God to uh, give us understanding of this text. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you... I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much. Uh, that you and your wisdom um, led us by your spirit to study this book as a church. Um, I am just overwhelmed with excitement uh, this morning as I think about the next year or so, just gazing upon Jesus week in and week out. And Father, I pray uh, that we would become a church that um, not only learns about Jesus, but follows Jesus and loves Jesus and worships Jesus as he deserves to be worshipped, God. And I pray that you would use this text this morning, um, this passage, this historical event to 
enrich our worship, to raise our eyes to the heights of Christ's personhood and to the depths of his love for us. And so, Father, I pray, speak now um, through this sermon. Remove me out of the way. May I point to someone beyond myself whose sandals I'm unworthy to untie, Father. And we pray all of this by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Everything thus far in the Gospel of Mark has been introductory. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, introduces us to the theme of this book, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is what the book will be about. It will be introducing us to the one who is the Christ, the Son of God. And then in verse 2 through 8, we hear a voice in the wilderness proclaiming to prepare the way for Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God of heaven and earth, the God of the Old Testament. Prepare the way of Yahweh. John the Baptist fulfills prophecy by serving as a messenger, preparing the way for the Lord. He prepares it through a message of repentance and forgiveness, and he points to someone greater than him who is coming. And then, with little warning, no more introduction, the main character arrives on the scene. I think it's so interesting that John says, prepare the way for Yahweh God. And then Jesus is introduced. In verse 9, Jesus appears. And you might expect uh, for him to be appearing, riding on a fiery chariot, surrounded by splendor and majesty. All that we've been introduced to thus far in the book is that this man is the Christ. He's the son of the holy God. He's coming. He is the coming of the Lord that fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 40. He's the one who John the Baptist says is mightier than he. He's the one who has authority and the ability to immerse people in the very spirit of God. And then in verse 9, it just says, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. He's, he's introduced as a guy with a place of origin, the city of Nazareth. And for the first century readers, this introduction would have been at first glance underwhelming. Nazareth was a real place in the first century, and it would have been a striking thing to hear that Jesus was from Nazareth. Nothing and no one very important came from the city of Nazareth. It was a small, insignificant, impoverished town. No one of great wealth, no one of great power, no one of great fame ever came from Nazareth. Hence, Nathaniel's response when he hears about Jesus in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verse 46, when uh, he is approached saying that the Messiah is here, Philip tells him the Messiah is here, that he's from Nazareth, and Nathaniel responds in John 1, 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come see, <laughs> come check it out. By introducing Jesus as a man coming from Nazareth, we are already confronted with the first of two, two realities about Jesus that will be communicated simultaneously throughout the entire book. That Jesus is truly human and Jesus is truly divine. As we work through these two paragraphs this morning and through the entire book, 
in a moment, we'll be staggered by the fact that he's experiencing human things to the fullest. And then the next moment, we'll be staggered by the fact that this Jesus is far more than just human. He is also divine. And back and forth and back and forth, we'll be struck by the fullness of the person of who Jesus is. So truth number one this morning is that Jesus is truly human, who is truly from a place in space and time, a historical city named Nazareth. And this Jesus of Nazareth in the story comes and John is, 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 is preparing the way. He's preaching. He's baptizing people who will repent and believe in the one true God, that there is one who is coming. And Jesus comes on the horizon. And John, uh, we, we have this picture that when Jesus is coming, John the Baptist sees him and then just proclaims, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist recognizes immediately who it is who is coming up to him in his ministry and and then but surprisingly I mean you would think that Jesus would be like that's enough John I'm taking over now you step aside I'm here but Jesus approaches John and he requests that John baptize Jesus Jesus Son of God, Christ, Messiah, fulfiller of Isaiah 40, one who has the power to immerse in the Holy Spirit, approaches John the Baptist, weird dude eating locusts and honey, wearing camel hair, and says, can you baptize me? And Jesus literally and physically gets down into the dirty waters of the Jordan and asks for John to immerse him under the water. And though John the Baptist feels unworthy to untie Jesus's dirty shoes, he now is asked to baptize Jesus in the Jordan. And you got you got when you read this story, you're immediately struck with with the question why in the world would Jesus need to be baptized? And we're going we're gonna to address that question more further along in the, in the study this morning. But for now, I, I want you just to simply notice the humility of Jesus in this moment, the obedience of Jesus in this moment, the wonder of this moment, the staggering reality of what's taking place. I mean, uh, the first century readers would have already believed that Jesus was divine. Remember, they're, they're, Chris, this, this book was written for Christians uh, in, in many ways to be encouraged uh, as they're suffering persecution by Nero. And so they're seeing now the one through whom the waters were separated at creation. Now getting down into the waters and being immersed as an act of obedience. They're seeing the one through whose power parted the Jordan River in the book of Joshua. Now getting down into the Jordan River and allowing another to dunk him under the water and raise him up out of an act of obedience. Jesus gets down into the water like everyone else. Like every other uh, every other human being there, he gets down into the water and follows this step of obedience, but he rises out of the water like nobody else there. <laughs> so 
Jesus' baptism, at first look, as he goes into the water, is like everybody else there. All those sinners who have, have sin to repent of and, and need to turn to the one true God. But when Jesus rises out of the water, this is what happens, verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open. And the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Truth number two. Jesus is truly divine. The book of Genesis records a time in the history of the world. Where there was no separation between heaven and earth. Where, where the dwelling place of God was the same as the dwelling place of man. When you think back to before the fall, uh, God is described as walking in the cool of the garden and having conversation with his creatures. And then they rebel against God and they are cast out of his manifest presence between heaven and earth the sin of humanity creates a barrier that was not there before and continues throughout the whole story of the old testament there's the sense in which god is holy and loves his people but he cannot be approached in his holiness because you will die because of your sin he descends upon a mountain and they're told not to touch the mountain he says build a temple build a put a veil in there but do not enter behind the veil unless you do so according to my instructions. The barrier was symbolized throughout Israel's history by this large veil in the temple separating the manifest presence of God from the people. And only a high priest after a series of washing rituals and only with the preparation of sacrifice and only once a year could enter into the presence of God. And here in this moment, after this symbolic washing of baptism, Jesus rises from the water and the very heavens themselves are torn open. The Greek word there is schizo, meaning to tear apart, to split, to separate. It's sort of like a, like a violent tearing or ripping of something. The, the heavens themselves, the prophets spoke of a day where where Yahweh would descend, where the heavens would rip open. Isaiah uh, speaks of this coming day, and in this moment, the heavens tear open, and then the manifest Spirit of God is visually, you've got this visual uh, 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 picture of seeing the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus and into Jesus. The Greek is, is not just on top of, but into. He's engulfing Jesus. There's this moment where the gap between heaven and earth is being bridged by and in the person of Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God is seen communing with him in a visible form like a dove descending from the heavens. He is shown to have an intimate connection to God the Father, by God the Spirit. As you, you look at this visual picture of God the Son in communion with God the Father, by God the Spirit, you can't help but think to what Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, where he says, 
Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. It's almost like in the baptismal moment, you're seeing a fellowship within God himself that he has enjoyed from eternity past. But in this moment, the Spirit of God is descending upon Jesus in his human flesh, communing with him, filling him, engulfing him. Heaven is resting upon the physical body of Jesus on earth. And as if the visual picture of the Spirit of God was not enough, then you hear the voice of God the Father audibly affirming what you're seeing. Verse 11, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is not the moment where Jesus became the divine son of God. This is the moment where God the Father is publicly affirming and declaring what has always been the case. This is the moment where Jesus begins the ministry he was determined to fulfill from eternity past. The greatest mystery of Christianity is that God, even in his essence, is beyond our ability to comprehend. He is Trinity. He is love in and of himself. He is and always has been relational from the dawn of eternity. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, distinct in person, yet united in deity for eternity. The incarnation, God the Son becoming flesh, is the wildest doctrine in the Bible. And here you have the most authoritative voice in the cosmos saying, this is who this is. I mean, I'm glad John the Baptist prepared the way. I'm glad John the Baptist proclaimed it, that there's authority in that. He's fulfilling prophecy. But here's a voice from heaven itself saying, this is the Son of God. I like how J.I. Packer puts it in his book, Knowing God. He says, it is here. And the thing that, that began at the first Christmas, that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie. The word became flesh. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. At the moment of the baptism, we see the fullness of God on display. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, working in perfect harmony to declare who Jesus really was. The book begins with Mark's declaration that Jesus is the Son of God in verse 1. And now, that declaration is affirmed by God himself. But one of the most amazing things in my study this uh, week, and one of, the most th- one of the things I was most excited about just to teach you or show you in God's word, is uh, Mark's style throughout the book. One of the things that you'll recognize is that he uses this literary style of, of sandwiching, okay? He will, he will put bookends on stories, He'll say one thing, then he'll say a new thing, 
uh, and then he'll come back and say that old thing. He'll sandwich ideas, and he does so on purpose. He, he wants to show how the things on the end inform the things in the middle. So later on in the, in the story of, of Mark, there'll be this moment where Jesus curses a fig tree, and then it, he moves on, and then he goes into the temple, and he sort of casts judgment on the temple, and then the next story, they come back to the fig tree, and the fig tree has withered away to nothing. And, and the idea is that when Jesus casts judgment upon something, the thing's over. And so it's saying the temple system is over. And so you see how the sandwiching works. But the one thing I noticed this week is that there's actually a sandwiching for the entire book of, of Mark. The book begins with this declaration of Jesus' personhood. He is the Son of God. The heavens tear open. Schizo, that Greek word. Well, there's only one other time. One other time in the New Testament where the word schizo is used, and it comes at the very end of the book at Jesus' death. So I want you to, to either look at the screen or flip there with me. Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verse 38. This is right after the last breath of Jesus. He dies on the cross. End of the story. And verse 38 says, at, at the breathing of Jesus' last breath, verse 38 says, the curtain of the temple was schizo, torn, ripped violently in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So at the beginning of the book, the heavens are torn open and the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus himself and the Father declares, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At the end of the book, the curtain in the temple is torn and the most unlikely of people declare Jesus' true identity. A Roman soldier guilty of crucifying Jesus now declares, Truly, this man was the Son of God. At the beginning, heaven itself is tore open. The Spirit descends upon Jesus. God the Father says he's the Son of God. At the end of Jesus' ministry, the curtain, the barrier, which symbolizes the barrier between sinful man and a holy God, is schizoed. It is torn open, and the Spirit is now made available to every single believer in Jesus Christ. And now the worst of sinners, ones who even drove the nails in to his wrists can behold truly this was the son of God the whole point of the gospel of Mark is that Jesus is the one who bridges the gap between sinful humanity and a holy God he tears the veil he tears open the heavens so that even the most unlikely of us can know God and be filled by his spirit Why was Jesus baptized? Why was Jesus truly human, truly divine, subjecting himself to the act of baptism? And Mark, he just, he just states this as a matter of fact and leaves us to wrestle with the reality, but other gospel 
writers reveal the hesitancy of John the Baptist to even baptize them. I mean, uh, uh, baptism's this symbol of repentance. This is the symbol of faith. Why would Jesus, the Son of God, be baptized? Why would he dip his perfect body into the same waters where people were coming to symbolically wash their sins away? In Matthew chapter 3, verse 14, John says, Or Matthew says, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, (laughs) and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he consented. This is Jesus' answer, and this is the third truth out of three this morning. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness righteousness. I like how Pastor Sinclair Ferguson says it. This is what he says. Jesus's baptism inaugurates him publicly into his role as the priest who bears away the sins of men in order to bring them forgiveness and salvation. What we have here is Jesus's public acknowledgement that he had come to stand where sinners should stand, to receive what they should deserve, and in return, to give them as a gift grace and fellowship with God. Jesus was baptized for the same reason that he died. Not because he needed to, but because he needed to stand in the place where we need to stand or rather hang on the cross. We deserve to hang. Jesus was baptized so that he might perfectly walk in all the righteousness we are called to walk in, to represent us before God the Father. He's the only one who could live the righteous life we could not live and die the unrighteous, the death for unrighteousness we should have died. As a perfect man... who who fulfilled all righteousness, even the step of baptism. As a perfect man, he represents us. As God, he forgives us. He fulfills all the righteousness that we are called to walk in, and he resists all the temptations that we fail to resist. Mark um, is the shortest gospel of of them all, and, and, and the whole thing, you'll notice uh, the word immediately shows up over and over and over again. He's just quickly moving from action to action to action. Some say it's because his Greek wasn't as good, so he, th- they didn't know that many other words to transition. But, <laughs> but there's this sense of that you're moving from, from story to story. And so you've got this baptismal moment where, where Jesus is declared as the divine Son of God for whom, whom the, the heavens are torn open for. And, and then he quickly transitions... To verse 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The Spirit of God 
This same Spirit of God we see communing with Jesus at the baptism now compels him into the wilderness. And again, so now we're back. Now we're confronted to, with Jesus' humanity. We're back to truth one. Jesus is truly human. He's driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. He must humbly follow the leading of the Spirit of God into the next moment of his ministry. He's thrust into a situation for 40 days where he, face, where he faces great intense, with great intensity what every human being experiences. He experiences temptation. I mean, you might think, I mean, you have this like epic moment where God the Father declares, I'm pleased with you. So you might think, okay, now's the time where he like flames on and like gets on a white horse and like rides the Rome to like stick it to the Roman emperor, right? You're like, now's the moment where Jesus, Jesus just balls out and does what only Jesus can do and proves that he's mightier and that nobody else can even untie his shoes. And, and I mean, God just said, I'm pleased with you from the heavens. And in the next moment, the spirit of God says, now to the wilderness by yourself. To experience for 40 days no food and water and temptation from the cosmic enemy of God. <laughs> Satan attacks Jesus with temptation for 40 days, immediately following what you'd think would be the spiritual high. <laughs> now, it apparently is God's will to be put through the ringer. In other Gospels, we are given far more detail um, than here in the Gospel of Mark, but, but the picture's clear even here in Mark. Jesus is alone. He finds himself in the wilderness. He is with wild beasts. Okay, Mark, like why? why? You're not giving us a whole lot of details, but you're going to throw the wild beast detail in there. Surely this detail is provided to help us as the readers imagine the sort of frightening and difficult situation Jesus was placed in for 40 days. If you remember, last week we spoke about the original readers of the Gospel of Mark, how they were enduring persecution from the Roman Emperor Nero, and how he was persecuting the Christians by often feeding them to the wild beasts. You listen to one commentator as he writes, he says, uh, Tacitus, uh, a historian, spoke of Nero's savagery toward the Christians in the 60s of the first century with these words, that he would cover them with hides of wild beasts torn to pieces by dogs. Given the ravaging of Christians by ferocious animals during Nero's reign, it's not difficult to imagine that Mark is including the unusual phrase, with the wild beast, in order to remind his Roman readers that Christ too was thrown to wild beasts. And as the angels ministered to him, so too will they minister to the Roman readers facing martyrdom. Not only is Jesus alone in the wilderness, surrounded by the hostility of wild animals, he is experiencing temptation and vexation of such intensity that he is needing God to minister him minister to him through the work of angels. This 40 days of temptation, we read it quickly in our Bibles, but we, we don't stop to consider how real it was. That it was a difficult thing. We think, oh, Jesus was divine and perfect. Therefore, this was a breeze. He was taking like a mountain retreat. Jesus never sinned, but I I agree with C.S. Lewis when he argues that Jesus understands the intensity of temptation more than we do. 
Listen to what C.S. Lewis says as he reflects on Jesus' temptation. C.S. Lewis says, Bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. (laughs) And Christ... Because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Not only was Jesus tempted, he was tempted beyond what any of us have ever been because you give in before it gets tough. (laughs) And he did not. If you think spiritual warfare in your life is great... Consider what it must have been for Jesus with all of the energies of Satan himself being directed at Jesus, the Son of God, in human flesh. And this is why the author of Hebrews agrees in Hebrews 4, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. So why does Jesus baptize? Why is Jesus driven into the wilderness? Why is that the plan before he begins his public ministry? Well, the answer to the question is the same for both. And now we're back to truth number three. Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. Think about it. Adam and Eve in the garden, a perfect garden, not, su- not surrounded by, by hostile beasts. Adam and Eve fail to resist the temptation in the garden. Israel, the one who's supposed to represent God, the nation, God's people, tremendously failed for 40 years of wilderness wanderings. It seems as if they gave into every temptation that came their way. Read uh, Numbers, read uh, Deuteronomy, and you'll see the people of God failing in the wilderness for 40 years. And now, in Mark, comes this one driven into the wilderness for 40 days, but doesn't fail. A new and better Adam who comes to resist the temptations of the serpent. A new and better Israel who survives the 40 days in the wilderness without falling into sin. Jesus was driven into the wilderness. Jesus experienced temptation. Jesus overcame temptation because we couldn't. Because we didn't. Because we don't. It is through his victory over sin and death that we have victory over sin and death today. He was righteous on our behalf. He did what we could not do. He resisted what we cannot resist so that he would be the perfect sacrifice on the last day. So that his sacrifice would be one so powerful that the veil would tear from top to bottom and that we would be invited into the very presence of God now and forever listen Christianity is not the message that you can do it and Jesus can help Christianity is the message that you could not do it so Jesus did it 
trust him. Follow him. He bridges the gap between man and God because he was truly human and truly God who fulfilled all righteousness in our place. So how do we respond uh, to these two paragraphs, to the, this preparation before Jesus begins his ministry? I want to close this morning with, uh, with three takeaways. Three takeaways. And they'll help us sort of review as well. Takeaway number one, be humbled by the mystery of the incarnation. I think that we should all admit that there are things about God that are beyond our comprehension. There are things about God that so obviously make him God as opposed to us. That God is eternal and you're not. That God is creator. That God is uncreated. That God is all-knowing. That God is all-powerful. That God is all-present, omnipresent. That God is self-sustaining. That he needs no thing to continue to exist. Like you need air and water and food and shelter. And somehow, someway, God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Somehow, someway, God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus and that God the Father remained in the heavens and God the Spirit transcended as the connection between God the Father and God the Son. There is no doctrine in the Bible that is as mysterious as God's personhood, his very essence, his very nature, what he's been, what he was doing before creation ever came to being. All the miracles of Jesus are easy to believe if you first grasp Christmas. That he is God in the flesh. And you can let this doctrine frustrate you because of how otherworldly it is. You can let it frustrate you because you can't fit it into the equation of your head of how reality operates. Or you can take the word of a resurrected man and his followers and you can let it humble you into awe-inspiring worship. That our God is both so much bigger than our comprehension Yet he remains so intimately familiar with us, our temptations, and our sufferings. So let it humble you this morning into worship. Takeaway number two, turn to Christ alone for your salvation. The Gospel of Mark will make clear over and over and over again that there is no one else who can tear the veil that separates you and God. God the Father says this of Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Father is pleased with him. That's the verdict over Jesus' sinless life. And, and Christian, you should enjoy this next sentence. You are invited into that position. You are invited into that place where God the Father is pleased with you. Because of what Jesus did for you. That you are invited to be a son and daughter of God the Father. Because of what Jesus did for you. You are invited into a place where God declares over you exactly what he declared over Jesus. I'm pleased with you. 
Do you, do you feel how much you want to hear that from your own earthly fathers? How staggering is it that God the Father is pleased with you because of what Jesus did for you? This is the salvation we learned about in Romans, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.15, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So through faith in Jesus, God the Father is pleased in us. Only Christ Jesus can offer this. Takeaway number three, our last one. Follow Christ's example for your sanctification. So not only does, does Jesus provide the only way for our salvation, he also provides this perfect example for our sanctification. He models for us what true human flourishing should look like. He, Jesus himself humbles himself to the act of baptism as a public declaration of, of who he was. He, he walked in obedience, though, though he had no sin to repent of. You have sin to repent of. <laughs> you have faith you must have. And, and, and so you should walk in the steps he walked. And, and uh, I said this last week, I'll say it again. Um, if you've not been baptized as an adult, as a public proclamation of your faith in Jesus, I want to reiterate, because then we'll move on from this baptism talk to later in the end, that, that this is both the command and the example of King Jesus. And it stands in direct contradiction to the doctrine of the most popular, the most widely held belief system in our neighborhood. Be baptized. Jesus himself was as a 30-year-old, <laughs> not as an infant. He then follows the leading of the Spirit into the wilderness. He does not avoid the difficulty. He does not shy away from the uncomfortability, but he follows the Spirit in order to fill his ministry. I mean, it, it, Again, you would think that now's the time to be comfortable, Jesus. Bless yourself. Have victory over things. But God leads him into the wilderness to wage war against his enemy, to resist temptation. And he seeks relief from God the Father in all his warfare. And we're called to do the same. And so may I encourage you, Christian, do not believe the lie that God would never lead you into the wilderness. Do not believe the, the lie that God will not lead you into the most uncomfortable of spaces where God most wants you to be. <laughs> Amen. May we go where God leads, do what God says, resist what God hates, all in reliance on God's spirit, following in the footsteps of God's son. Sometimes, oftentimes, being a Christian means following the Lord into the wilderness, into the places of exile, into the places of uncomfortability, so that we might fulfill His will. We will see that all the more next week as Jesus calls His first disciples.
Let's pray and respond to this end. Father, we pray that you would help us now to be humbled by the mystery of Jesus and the incarnation. Help us to turn to Christ alone for our salvation. And Father, help us to follow your example. Help us to follow Christ's example for our sanctification. Thank you, Lord, for this gospel. Thank you for this book. Thank you for these truths and for the salvation that you tore open the heavens and you tore the veil and invited us into the communion of God. We pray this in 